0: You're listening to Radio Looks Lucid, I'm your host, Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for episode 76. The title of this episode is The Democrats' War on the American People. Well, before I dive into talking about that, I wanted to ask a question of you. Have you ever had one of these cases where, you know, you start a project that you think is gonna be pretty easy, but ends up being kinda hard? It probably most of us have been in that boat at one point or another, and, and I had mine just the past couple of days. What I did is I started this course on on filmmaking, on on photography and video editing, this kind of thing. It's actually a really good course. I bought it about a year ago, but I haven't had a chance to do anything with it. But I had some time here recently, so I started working through some of this. And I found it very helpful. I've already learned a lot. But one of the things as I was going through it, it talked a bit about gear it had a whole chapter segment dealing with gear you know camera gear computers this kind of thing and the good news is that most of the stuff i need i actually already have the one thing i didn't have is i didn't have enough ram in my my computer system my system had uh, 16 uh, gigabytes of, of ram and i noticed when i did some video editing a few months back that it seemed kind of slow that there was a lot of delays and whatnot in it and watching this video today or the video a couple of days ago, one of the things that the the person who did this recommended is that you should have at minimum thirty two gigabytes of RAM to be able to do video editing and have the system run properly. So anyway, I decided okay, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get get some get some RAM because I checked my system, I found out okay, I've got sixteen gigs, and uh, so I went about. I thought, well, you know, adding adding RAM, well, that's that's pretty easy, right? I mean, you don't have to be a total tech nerd to be able to do that. All you have to do is pop the side off your computer, take the the additional RAM chips, pop them into the slots that are in there, close it back up, and you're done, right? I mean, that's the way it's supposed to work. At least I, I think it is. So anyway, I go in, I go over the other night to, to buy some RAM chips. And I buy the things, and I bring them back, and I go to put them in my system, and I find that they don't fit. Or at least one doesn't fit. I've got this kind of big oversized fan and it overhangs one of the slots that I needed to to put the chips in. So I was frustrated with that. So I took the took them back and and i I brought the i I made an exchange. I was actually going to buy some some larger chips and and not use all four slots, but the guy over there that I talked to the second time this is today he told me, oh, we can get you a low profile chip that'll fit under the fan so anyway, so anyway, I made this exchange and i I bought the low profile chips and I brought them back, and I was able to get those things in. And I thought I had it all set up, and I brought it upstairs, and the system's malfunctioning. I'm getting the computers flashing at me and doing all these terrible things. Uh, I I got so frustrated. I I have a very low frustration tolerance for um, things when they don't work, and and I know that that's a fault that I have, and I've struggled with it my whole life. And it just I get angry, and this is one of the reasons why I'm not a do-it-yourselfer. You know, my dad is is great at this kind of stuff. He has the patience to work through it. I just get frustrated. When stuff doesn't work, and honestly, it, it's kind of immature and, and kind of childish. And I I need to to work on that. I'm I'm not trying to defend what. How I I feel inside. I'm just telling you what I do feel. I get so frustrated. So I threw the system back into the back in my car, drove the thing over, and in any way I was able to to the computer store, and I was able to actually get them to put the things in. But it ended up costing me an extra forty bucks to do that. So I don't know. I felt kind of silly about the whole thing, but at least I, I at least got it done. But it sucked up all this time. Uh, last night, Friday night, it sucked up all this time today for me to get this stuff done. And as a result, I didn't get to doing some of the things that I wanted to get done today, including getting my podcast done. So I apologize. I know this is uh, being done a little bit later than I wanted to, and I probably am not as prepared as I would like to be. So if I'm a little bit rough today, cut me a little bit of slack on that because I I was having trouble with my computer, you know, and, and, and that's not a whole lot of fun. <laughs> So anyway, uh, I'm glad you joined me here today. Welcome to everybody that's on the live stream and also to uh, to those who are listening on the uh, on the podcast as well. You know, another thing that I had here this week or in today, when I was putting this together, and I was trying to figure out what to, to call it. I was trying to come up with some kind of clever title or something. I struggled for a while to come up with this thing. When I was writing out my outline, I just called it Episode 76, Title to be Determined, because I didn't know what to put for this. There was so much going on this week, and I, that was really the thing. And I, I couldn't really come up with a a good, maybe necessarily unifying theme for everything, And and a lot of these stories are actually, they're all pretty important stories, so it's kind of hard even to find maybe one that, that was a lead story. But I finally decided to settle on the Democrats' war on the American people and... Uh, we 'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in a minute, but just thinking about some of the stuff that was going on this week, I mean, you had you know Joe Biden and the Democrats really up the ante on their war on the American people and, and speaking of war i mean you 've got this situation going on with Russia and ukraine and and some of the stuff over there uh, we 're in a position we 're probably closer to to war with Russia than we have been in a very long time and and i don 't think that the American people either understand probably understand how serious things are, because it's largely being kept from them by the media. And what they do here is, in my opinion, a a gross misrepresentation of what's actually going on. There's the the third thing you got going on. You've got that whole COVID vax mandate ruling from the Supreme Court, which was in some ways good, in in some ways not so good. And again, we'll talk about that. I've got a, a Piece in here, I, I talk about the uh, the Bergoglio administration. I, I think I've referred, talked about the Bergoglio administration in the past. Well, there's just a number of things where the Pope is coming out and making statements that could easily be, you know, something that was released by the White House because there's really not, you know, they used to say there's not a dime's worth of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. Well, I would say this, there's not a dime's worth of difference between the Vatican and the Biden administration. So maybe we should just call it the Bergoglio administration and be done with it. Of course, uh, Bergoglio, that's the last name of of the current, uh, the current uh, Pope, uh, Jorge Bergoglio. And uh, you got, so you got the Bergoglio Biden administration. Then finally, um, there's something about Hillary. I guess, oh, uh, good old Hillary Clinton. She's back from the dead, at least politically speaking, or at least that's was one of the big stories this last week. And I want to touch on that a bit uh, as well. So uh, in getting into our topics here today, I, I guess I wanted to start here with maybe the, uh, the title story from this past week. And, and that is the. Uh, The Democrats' War on the American People, and and specifically I wanted to talk here about uh, Joe Biden and how he lectured the American people about his voting rights bill. Now, you know, the American elite class has been openly hostile to the historic American nation, and and when I say that, I mean specifically um, the the legacy Anglo-American core population of the United States. And in particular of that group, I'm talking about, you know, working class white people, Christians, Republicans, political conservatives, and you know, generally anybody from flyover country, maybe that voted for Donald Trump, or well, the kind of person who would vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, you think back when Barack Obama was president, um, he famously talked about the uh, small-town people, and he was talking particularly about white Americans, and he called them, you know, he said that they were bitterly clinging to their guns and religion you know they they weren't prepared to face the future and they were bitterly clinging to this past you know their their guns their their sort of bible-thumping christian religion and of course he he had complete contempt for them and i thought at the time that that was i thought it, i was offended by what he said but on the other hand i was partially glad that he did say it because it got out in the open and made very clear exactly what not just what what uh, what barack obama thought of the american people but really what the entire sort of coastal elite class thinks of the average American person. They hold them in contempt. They really do. And then, of course, a few years later, this was in the 2016 presidential campaign, you had Hillary Clinton. She kind of upped the ante a little bit. And she called called the American people. She made her famous statement there about the deplorables. And that actually kind of became a rallying cry (laughs) for a lot of Trump supporters uh, in the... uh, in that election, in the last few months of that election, she made that statement fairly late. I think it may have been in October, September, October, or sometime in the fall of 2016. Yeah, in fact, here's a an article I found this in was the Washington Post. She made it on September 6, 2016. So it was less than two months, or just right about two months, prior to to the uh, the actual election. She called them a, I guess a a basket of deplorables. She talked about them being irredeemable. Oh, she says. I'm all that stands between you and the apocalypse, which, of course, would have been the, the election of Donald Trump. Clinton told the cheering crowd, she launched into all things she found deplorable about Trump. He threatened marriage equality. That is, he he didn't uh, think much of, of, uh, of same-sex marriage. Cozied up to white supremacists. Well, you know, a white supremacist is... That's pretty much just an ordinary white person who goes about his business. I mean, it sounds like a really terrible thing to say about someone, but the context in which the Democrats use the term white supremacist just means just a regular old person. Somebody like maybe you and me. Um, you know, you, you don't have to be some some crazy Klansman or some, you know, some overt racist or, you know, some skinhead or something like this or a neo-Nazi. No, you don't have to be any of those. You just have to be a regular person uh, and, and you can be denounced as, as a white supremacist. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's just the world we're living in right now. So let's see, I guess Trump, I guess he cozy up to white supremacists, made racist and sexist remarks, all things she found so personally offensive. And again, this is from the Washington post. She says, just to be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump supporters in what I call the basket of deplorables, right? And there was laughter and applause. And uh, interesting too. This was actually a speech that she gave for Barbara Streisand at a glitzy fundraiser in New York City. A group of LGBTQ supporters, and if you don't know what that stands for, LGBTQ—that's uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer—is is what that means. So, a group of LGBTQ supporters uh, who were gathered at. St- The Cipriani restaurant in the Democratic candidate had one job, to fire up her donors. Well, she did fire up her donors, but she also fired up her opponents as well. says, Clinton apologized the next day in a very Clinton-esque manner. I regret saying half. That was wrong, she said in a statement. What was the magic number? She didn't say. She did, however, double down on calling out Trump's bigotry and racism. So I don't know, maybe it was a third, maybe it was a quarter. I don't know. maybe it was 10%. I I don't know. I don't know. Um but uh, but according to her original speech it was half. And and the truth of the matter is I think it's probably I, I think half is probably an understatement. I think probably she means like 99%. And th- that's certainly the sense that you get from the uh from the Democrats and not just you know the the in particular the democratic elite. You know, and I'm talking about, you know, when I talk about the elite, I mean people like Barack Obama, I mean people like Hillary Clinton, you know, the the sort of the the professoriate professoriate, if you will, um, and, and these kinds of things, you know, the the big shot corporate donors, the the people in Hollywood, the the entertainment industry. I mean, you know, Hollywood's just horrible. I I I mean, in, in not only are their movies immoral, and, and they have been for a very, very long time, but just the the absolute just hatred. Of just the ordinary American people that comes out of, of their mouths is, is really astounding. You know, I mean, they're these people that will get up and sanctimoniously, sanctimoniously lecture you about how tolerant they are. And they're tolerant of everybody except for you and me. And it, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, I don't want to give these people a dime. I mean, I say not only are their, their movies very often pornographic, but just their attitude and the contempt and the hatred. That comes through not only in their movies, but also in their words and in their actions, outside of the productions, uh, is is just appalling. So yeah, you have Barack Obama and you have Hillary Clinton, but now you got you got Joe Biden and and Joe Biden and the people that surround him have have really upped the ante. You know, he gave a speech this past week. On voting rights, you know, the Democrats have this big voting rights bill that they want to push through, which basically federalizes elections and allows the Democrats to, to rig and to cheat and to scam even more than they did in 2020. And, you know, they want to make it permanent. And if you don't think that that's the most awesome thing in the whole world, well, in Joe Biden's, um, words, and, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but basically he, he called implied very strongly implied, and if you don't agree with him on this whole voting rights thing, that you're you're some kind of a racist, and you're probably a domestic terrorist on top of all of that. So you know you're you're an all around you know you're, you're right back in that basket of deplorables, uh, as it were, right back in Hillary's basket of deplorables, and you're you're bitterly clinging to your guns and religion. Well, I, I do cling to my guns and religion, but it's not bitterly. I actually do it joyfully. Um, I'm thankful to the Lord God Almighty. He called me in Jesus Christ and and saved me and washed me from my sins. And by faith in in Christ alone, I'm justified, I'm saved, I'm adopted. And that's a joyful thing to cling to. And, you know, in terms of my guns, I have a right, as do all other Americans and all other people, we have a God-given right to defend ourselves, to keep and to bear arms. It's guaranteed to us in the Constitution, that right is. And I do exercise it. And I thank God that I still live in a country for all of the problems we have here in the United States of America, and they are legion. We still have that. And I'm very grateful to God for that. So, yes, I, I do cling to those. Uh, but, again, it's not out of bitterness. I'm, I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that I live in a country where I can still say that. Now, let's see, going on here, you know, the, the Biden regime, I mean, they've just been openly hostile again, to really the, the legacy core population of the United States of America. And, and they've just taken it, you know, they, they've taken the whole thing up an octave. I mean, you know, as bad as Hillary was, as bad as Barack Obama was in that regard, well, you know, this guy, this Biden regime is even worse. And, and here's an example of what I'm talking about. This is from USA Today, and this is a, a story. It's titled, uh, Kamala Harris, January 6th, will echo in U.S. history like Pearl Harbor. In fact, let me do this. I'm going to go ahead and... Yeah, there we go. Okay, so this is from January the 6th. Insurrection Day, right? Supposedly. That's a bunch of hooey. But uh, that's, uh, of course, what what the Dems want you to believe. I don't want to dive too far into that right now, but maybe we can. So let's see. What did, what did Kamala say? Marking one year since the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> yeah, I mean, USA just reports as the insurrection. Now, nobody up there was armed. And a lot of these people were simply just basically <laughs> some people call them, uh, boomer cons, you know, boomer conservatives, you know, people in their fifties and sixties are up there, uh, without any arms, but you know, in, in, things like this, actually, many of them were apparently let into the Capitol, uh, but, uh, the USA, reports this as an insurrection, uh, which would been the lamest insurrection that I've ever seen, but they, they call it that they, they, uh, Uh, They push the propaganda, the regime propaganda. Let's see. Vice President Kamala Harris on Thursday likened the attack to two other seminal moments in American history, Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And here's a quote. Quote from Kamala Harris. Certain dates echo throughout history, including dates that instantly remind all who have lived through them, where they were, and what they were doing when our democracy came under assault. End quote. Harris sat at the Capitol, kicking off a day of events commemorating the January 6th attack. They had a whole day to commemorate this thing. Yeah, in fact, I think they were standing on, they had that candlelight service standing on the Capitol steps singing, uh, what were they singing? Is it God Bless America, I think it was. Um, It's just terrible stuff. Harris, she continued, she said, some dates in U.S. history, quote, occupy not only a place in our calendars, but a place in our collective memory. December 7th, 1941, September 11th, 2001, and January 6th, 2021. Now, you know, here, here's the thing, and, and think about what's being implied in these statements here. Now, in on Pearl Harbor and on 9-11, the United States of America was attacked by... Hostile forces. In the case of, of Pearl Harbor, it was Imperial Japan. In the case of 9 nine eleven, you were talking about uh, Islamists, you know, Muslim extremists. Now, I don't want to go into all of the uh, stuff regarding nine eleven. I think that a lot of what is reported about nine eleven in the mainstream press is not accurate. But let's just go with uh, let, let's just go with with what's. What Harris talks about here, I mean, we, you know, 9-11, I mean, you got the whole, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden narrative, etc. And, well, let's just go with that for a moment, for argument's sake. So the United States was attacked by foreign powers on both of these occasions. And she's likening both of those occasions to what occurred on on January the 6th. So, I mean, she seems to be suggesting here that... The uh, the capital was attacked by by a group of foreigners, by you know foreign terrorists or foreign insurrectionists, or almost like a foreign army. And of course, that actually is is in keeping with the way the Biden people and others, you know, I've talked about Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton just as examples, and they're not the only ones, but those are two prominent examples. That is how they think of the uh, the historic American nation, you know, the legacy, you know, Anglo. Uh, American core population of the United States, of which I am one. Now, I've talked about that maybe a little bit before. I mean, my my ancestry here in the United States goes back before there was a United States. You know, as, as there are as many other millions of Americans are. And I can tell you that those Americans are not domestic terrorists. They are not, they do not hate America. In fact, I would say those Americans are some of the most loyal Americans there are. But the Biden regime has decided to to make war on them, and it's it's a, it's not only is it is it a sad situation, but it's actually deeply concerning, because what they have done is is they have turned disagreement into claims of of being uh, being an enemy of the state. You know, they have uh, created a, a a list of political enemies, and there's a story just this past week. Again, this is from the New York Times here. This is on January, date of January 11th. Headline, Justice Department Forms Domestic Terrorism Unit. The move is in keeping with Attorney General Merrick B. Garland's vow to make combating domestic terrorism a priority. And if you go through here, you can tell who they're targeting. And, and I can tell you, you know, you, you might think, oh, they must be tar- going after BLM. Nope, nope. They they have they have shown zero interest in, in Black Lives Matter, even though they spent all last year burning down cities from coast to coast. We might say maybe Antifa. You know, Antifa. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's Antifa or Antifa. I guess I've, I've been saying Antifa more recently, so I'll stick with that. Uh, but you think, well, maybe they're targeting Antifa, right? I mean, they they spent all of last year literally assaulting uh, the city of Portland, and they've been doing the same here this year. But but no, that's that is also not the uh, the people that they're going after. So so, just who are they going after? Well, we can read through here. All right, so this is a person, this is a statement by Jill Sanborn, the executive director of the FBI's National Security Branch, and she told said this to a Senate panel. Okay, so, so this is a, a person highly placed within the FBI giving official testimony here before the Senate, and this is what she said, uh, or at least a, a summary of what she said. The two most dangerous types of domestic extremists, uh, Ms. Sanborn said, are driven either by racial or ethnic belief oftentimes, quote, advocating for the superiority of the right, white race, end quote, or by anti-government sentiment from members of militia or anarchist groups. Racially motivated extremists were the primary source of lethal domestic extremist attacks in 2018 and 2019, according to the FBI data. Oh, but in 2020, militia and anarchist groups are responsible for three, or four, three of the four uh, lethal domestic extremist attacks. But it's interesting here, again, you know, they, they don't say anything about Antifa. They don't say anything about Black Lives Matter, but they do actually, I think, in another place here. Okay, so here's somebody else. Uh, I guess there's another f- spokesman, uh, somebody, the last name is Blumenthal, singled out a handful of groups, including the Atomwaffen Division, a small paramilitary neo-Nazi group that has disseminated violent messaging on social, e- social media. Atomwaffen, that's the, uh, the German word for atom bomb so it's some some neo-Nazi group uh that's out there running around doing really stupid stuff apparently but yeah that's uh they they're really serious that, that that is a huge threat to the American republic of course that's complete nonsense i mean are there people out there who are white supremacists are there people out there who are militants and things like this yes there are but the, these people hardly even exist at all in any kind of organized form and it's ridiculous for Merrick Garland and for the FBI to uh, to continue to target them and continue to drum this up as though somehow it's some great, huge, tremendous threat to the American Republic, which it is not. And of course, the Biden administration, the Biden regime, has been doing this since the very beginning. Uh, they they have a thing they call it the war on domestic terror, and there are a number of of uh, there are some bills that were drafted, or at least a bill that was drafted uh, right about the time that. Joe Biden was inaugurated, and the, the bill just continually just pounded home this idea of, of, of white supremacists, of neo-Nazis, of, you know, a whole you know basket of people that you and I would say, yeah, these are not good people. But again, the people, these groups hardly even exist. There's almost nothing there. But, you know, they try to make something out of nothing. They're making a mountain out of a molehill. You know, in, in this idea somehow that they are the greatest threat to this, uh, to, to our republic is, is just laughable. I mean, but this is a political agenda, you know, and of course, what they want to do is they want to say, well, you know, if, if you happen to be a conservative or a Christian or, you know, maybe you question the, um, say the, the narrative about the vaccine or something like this. Well, I mean, you know, you might fall in one of these categories. You know, I mean, they're weaponizing dissent that is what they are doing and it's extremely dangerous it is unamerican it is unconstitutional it is unchristian and it needs to stop so uh, let's see i want to move on to something else here what do we got uh, da, da, da. oh here's now here's a story that you may not have heard a lot about and, and that is some of the uh, the potential conflict going on with uh, with Russia over the situation in Ukraine. It's not been widely reported in the US. There's been reports out there, but it hasn't been the lead story. But I mean, the the hostilities between the United States and Russia right now are at their the highest they've been. I'd say probably since the Cold War. I mean, it's at least that that's kind of the sense that I get. And yet I don't think that people really understand the gravity of the situation and what reporting is done in my opinion is, is also highly inaccurate. You know, I go back and I I think about, um, it's kind of interesting going back. I mean, of course I grew up during the cold war and I remember when the Soviet union, this was in the late eighties, early nineties, when the Soviet union was getting ready to go belly up. I still remember, Uh, George H.W. Bush and James Baker running around desperately trying to find a way to prop up the Soviet Union. And that struck me as really bizarre because I, I thought to myself, well, you know, I've been growing up since I was a kid up until at that time I was in my early 20s. And all I'd ever heard is, you know, Cold War. Oh, we have to win the Cold War. or We have to spend billions of dollars and hundreds and trillions of dollars or whatever in order to defeat the Soviet Union. Well, the Soviet Union here is about ready to go belly up. And, and these guys are running around trying to bail out the people that we were, were told that we had to uh, had to defeat. And something didn't seem quite right to me about that. That just didn't seem, I don't know, uh, there was there was something wrong there. And, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time. But uh, I, I remember it definitely left me puzzled. Now, I, I think what happened, and this was a distinct impression I got at the time, I really do think the national security complex and the, uh, the Pentagon and, and some of these other um, agencies that were so deeply involved with the Cold War, I think they were deeply disappointed that the Soviet Union uh, fell apart. It's almost like they lost their playmate. You know, they lost their reason for existence. And and they were, I think, a bit desperate trying to find a, uh, try to sort of cast about to find a, a new reason to, to justify their huge budgets. I mean, when you have a gigantic budget, You have to have a gigantic enemy to justify it. And all of a sudden, the Soviet Union wasn't around anymore, and they really literally didn't know what to do with themselves. And I really do think that that's a lot of what was behind the desperation of Bush and Baker and a lot of other people in the sort of the national security complex to try to prop up the Soviet Union. They didn't want them to go away. They wanted the game to continue. It gave them power. It gave them purpose. It it gave them money. And, and even today, I mean, the United States, the military budget of the United States is over a trillion dollars, and I understand that the amount that the United States of America spends on, on military on the military every year is greater than the next 10 countries combined. So I mean that's how completely out of line uh, American military spending is compared to the rest of the world. We have this gigantic you know, I guess that was Eisenhower, he called it the military industrial complex. And it has, far from making our, our country safer, it, it's actually been an enormous burden on the taxpayers. And it has put us in, I think it's actually endangered this country. It hasn't made us safer, it's, it's made us less safe, in my opinion. And you know, what what's been going on here? It seems to me over the last number of years is the you know they they tried the whole thing with the you know the global war on terror, but that seems right now to kind of have run its course. I I guess now they've got the domestic war on terror, so that's a that's a big thing. I guess they they want to make war on the American people, but they've also uh, switched their attention back to Russia. You know, and, and of course. Yeah, uh, during the uh, the Trump administration, it was Russia, Russia, Russia all the time. And Donald Trump, when he tried to actually normalize relations with Russia, the the security complex, you know, the the diplomatic complex, you know, the whole foreign policy establishment, military establishment, they absolutely lost their minds. They absolutely lost their minds. I mean, they, they couldn't deal with it. I, I remember there was a guy that John Brennan, fellow. In fact, he was one of the people that worked to try to overthrow. Uh, Donald Trump to have him. Apparently, I think he may have been involved in trying to prevent him even becoming president. But once he became president, I think he was also involved in in plots to to remove him. And I suspect he was probably part of the uh, what went on with the the rigging of the election in in 2020. Now I don't have any any proof of that, but I just I strongly suspect because he's the kind of guy that would be involved in something like that. You might say he's the usual suspect. One of the usual suspects. But anyway, um, he absolutely just completely lost his mind on TV. And I remember reading this article where he actually called Trump's meeting when he met, when Trump met with uh, Vladimir Putin in Helsinki in the summer of 2018, he called. Uh, he called the president's performance nothing short of treasonous. those are his exact words there's a, a story in c n n that I found about that he said he said that donald trump's performance at the the Helsinki conference with Putin was nothing short of treasonous, which is incredibly strong language to use and and i think it's very inaccurate as well, especially considering that he was uh that John brennan was himself engaged in what i i think could could be argued as treason uh in the way he he tried to subvert the the duly elected the President of the United States, Donald Trump, and to have him removed from office. I think if anybody committed treason, I think it was John Brennan. But anyway, so you, you have this this uh, situation going on over there. There's, you know, there's this hostility against Russia that goes all the way back to the Cold War. You've got this gigantic Pentagon budget, and these people have to figure out uh, what to do with with uh, with all of this this military hardware. There's something else that that's a component to this whole uh, hostility with Russia as well, and that is this belief among the American foreign policy elite. In American exceptionalism, and that you know, meaning that America has a right to uh, to world hegemony, a right to rule the world. America is called the exceptional nation; it's the indispensable nation. You know, there's all this sort of uh, really uh, megalomaniacal ideas that that occupy the minds of our foreign policy establishment. So that's another thing that drives the hostility to Russia, and one of the reasons they hate Russia so much is because Russia is one of the few countries, maybe along with China, maybe there's really only two or so. Or maybe a few others that actually have the determination and the capability militarily to stand up to Washington, and Washington does not want there to be any military rivals out there. So the the genesis of the most recent conflict with with Russia, and, and you won't again you won't hear this in the mainstream at all, but the genesis of the the this uh, this current round of of conflict with Russia goes back. To at least 2014, at that, at that time, it was in 2014 that the CIA engineered the overthrow of the duly elected government of Ukraine. And the reason the CIA engineered the overthrow of the government of Ukraine is because the government of Ukraine decided, after some consideration, to seek closer ties with Russia and to not pursue closer ties with the, with the NATO alliance. They felt that they had that the, their alliance, a closer alliance with Russia, would benefit them more, and this uh, greatly angered the uh, the NATO people, the the foreign policy establishment in the United States. And they overthrew the government. They installed a government that was openly hostile to Russia and is essentially uh, made Ukraine into sort of a, a client state uh, of the United States. And you know, this has been, you know, what what has happened here over the last few years is that that NATO, which is essentially the United States has moved weapons into Eastern Europe, for instance, into Poland. I know, I think maybe, I want to say Romania, perhaps I, I could be wrong about that, but I know there's was at least a couple countries over there. Um, they have been supplying arms to, to Ukraine. They've been conducting military exercises on the, in the sea by air and also by land in close proximity to Russia. In other words, they're doing this right on Russia's doorstep and Russia has expressed repeatedly great concerns about this. And I think that you can understand their concerns. I think back, you know, I mean, what if what if you had, say, Russian armies conducting uh, military maneuvers in Mexico, or you had the, the Russian fleet uh, sailing around in the Gulf of Mexico or off the coast of uh, – off the east coast or off the west coast, maybe off the coast of, of California or something – I mean, people would be bothered by that, and rightfully so. And I think that if you think, you think about that from Russia's perspective, when you have U.S. forces in Eastern Europe and attempting to push even closer to Russia and in, into Ukraine, you can understand why they're concerned about that. I mean, this is one of the great principles of, of foreign policy, is, is the golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated, for this is the law and the prophets. Yeah, that, that's what Jesus said. And that applies not just on a personal level, but it also applies uh, on the national level as well. And you know, I didn't do this. I'm going to see if I can find a quote here real quick. There was an article, and I, I've talked about this. I know I've written about this before. Uh, th- this was an article in uh, on it was put out by uh, by a group by foreign policy, which I, I think that's the. One of the big mainstream groups puts this out, and I think it's the Council on Foreign Relations book is what this is. Uh, Council on Foreign Relations Organization, I think, is, is the publisher of, uh, of foreign policy. And this is an article that goes back to 2012 when Ron Paul was running for president, and they've got this fairly contemptu- co- contemptuous headline. and It says, Ron Paul invokes the Millard Fillmore Doctrine. The Millard Fillmore Doctrine. Okay, well, you know, so what's, what's the Millard Fillmore Doctrine? Oh, well, we won't put it up here, but I'm just going to read through this. It says, Ron Paul invokes the Millard Fillmore doctrine, question mark. And the writer here, it's uh, Yuri Friedman is his name. He says, let's face it, when Millard Fillmore, the undistinguished, uninspiring 13th president of the United States comes up in a political conversation these days, it's usually as the butt of jokes. And he gives an example: when five of your six candidates could not be elected president if they were running against Millard Fillmore, I think you can presume there will not. Dot dot dot. You know, whatever. Um, so, so, yeah, Millard Fillmore is kind of thought of as as uh, sort of the the butt of jokes. But if you actually read what Millard Fillmore wrote, the man had a lot of wisdom. Uh, certainly, when it came to to foreign policy. In fact, he he gave a State of the Union speech, and this goes back to I, I believe it was in 1850 and Millard Fillmore actually applied Jesus golden rule to foreign policy so let's, I'm going to read this here to you, and I think you might find this interesting. So this is a quote from Millard Fillmore. He says, Among the acknowledged rights of nations is that which each possesses of establishing that form of government, which it may deem most conducive to the happiness and prosperity of its own citizens, of changing that form as circumstances may require, and of managing, managing its internal affairs according to its own will. The people of the United States claim this right for themselves, and they readily concede it to others. what he's really describing here, this is actually the Westphalian world order, which I've talked about before. Let's continue with Fillmore. Quote, hence it becomes an imperative duty not to interfere in the government or internal policy of other nations. And although we may sympathize with the unfortunate or the oppressed everywhere in their struggles for freedom, our principles forbid us from taking part in such foreign contests. We make no wars to promote or to prevent secessions to thrones to maintain any theory of balance of power or to suppress the actual government which any country chooses to establish for itself we instigate no revolutions nor suffer any hostile military expeditions to be fitted out in the united states to invade the territory or provinces of a friendly nation the great law of morality ought to have a national as well as a personal and individual application we should act toward other nations as we wish to act as we wish them to act toward us And justice and conscience should form the rule of conduct between governments, instead of mere power, self-interest, or the desire of aggrandizement. To maintain a strict neutrality in foreign wars, to cultivate friendly relations, to reciprocate every noble and generous act, and to perform punctually and scrupulously every treaty obligation, these are the duties which we owe to other states, and by the performance of which we best entitle ourselves to like treatment from them, or... If that, in any case, be refused, we can enforce our own rights with justice and a clear conscience. End quote. So that's Millard Fillmore. Now, if you've never heard a Millard Fillmore quote, you might be shocked by that. But that is one of the best statements that I have ever read on foreign policy. I mean, there, right there, Millard Fillmore showed more integrity, more Christian integrity in his understanding of foreign policy and his application of the word of God to foreign policy, probably then exists in the entire foreign policy establishment today. I mean, that, that that is a remarkably Christian, sound, intelligent, just statement. And all credit to Millard Fillmore. Yeah, but everybody wants to make fun of you. I mean, he was a complete idiot and a fool and a loser and uninspiring and blah blah blah. Everybody just knows this, and this is one of the reasons why you can't. It's it's much better to actually go out and read original sources for yourself because when you do that, you find out a lot of things, maybe a lot of assumptions that have uh, filled your mind, maybe aren't right. You know, and, and these are assumptions, these are things that that you know we import from the news media and 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 what have you. It's very easy to do that, and that's why we have to be active in thinking about things and in comparing the words and the ideas that we see presented to us in, news, in newspapers or online or on TV with the Word of God, because the Word of God is our standard of truth. Millard Fillmore understood that. All honor to him for that. Well done, sir. And uh, I, I, wish our, I wish we had current political leadership that, that had the, the integrity of Millard Fillmore. But the United States, you know, you noticed there in the middle of the film, we talked about, you know, we don't foment res, uh, revolutions, et cetera, et cetera. Well, maybe they didn't do that back in 1850, but they sure do it today. I mean, that's what the CIA does. Uh, there are actually, you may have seen some discussion about that uh, stuff uh, that was going on in Kazakhstan last weekend. And there are some people who really think, and, and I think there's some very good, uh, a very good argument can be made for this, that that was probably the CIA trying to run another one of their color revolutions in Kazakhstan, the same way they did in, in Ukraine. And they're trying to send a message to Russia and say, well, you know, we can do this anytime we want, you know, and try to get them to back down in, in Ukraine. But I mean, Russia has made it very clear that they, they are not going to back down on this. And if you know, there, this is a situation we need to watch closely. And as, as Christians, of course, we need to pray that cooler heads prevail, because you know, right now it's it is a very tense and dangerous situation. Let's see what else do we got here. Okay, we had, I guess, this past we had that vax mandate ruling from the Supreme Court, and I, I guess it was partially good news. I mean I'm certainly glad that they overturned the vax mandate for employers of 100 or 100 or more employees because that certainly would affect me and it would probably affect most of you who are listening to this but they upheld the the ruling uh, for people in the the medical profession. Well, I mean the fact is there's no constitutional mandate. There's, there's, no, there's, there's nothing in the American Constitution that gives the federal government any power to mandate any medical treatment for anyone. It just doesn't exist. And yet the Supreme Court somehow found a way to do this. And I, I liked what uh, Paul Craig Roberts, he wrote a, a column on this, and, and I think he, he kind of got to the, the heart of the matter pretty well here. And the, the title of his column is Supreme Court Delivers Schizophrenic Ruling. Now I'll just read a bit of this here. Quote In a schizophrenic ruling on january thirteenth, the US Supreme Court ruled against the Biden regime's COVID vaccine mandate for private businesses, but for the mandate for healthcare workers. Ordinary Americans might wonder why the justice has protected some people from undergoing a coerced medical procedure, but not others. The obvious inconsistency in their position probably has not occurred to the justices. As they see it, in the case of private businesses, OSHA. Uh, was exercising power and not conveyed to it by Congress but Congress did give authority to the Secretary of Health and Human Services from whence came the mandate for healthcare workers to promulgate rules as the secretary finds necessary and in the interest of the health and safety of individuals who are furnished services by Medicare and Medicaid by Medicare and Medicaid services so the mindless justices, the Nuremberg laws do not enter, enter the decision, only whether the authority imposing a Joseph Mengele policy of coerced medical intervention has the okay from Congress to do so. This thinking, or lack thereof, indicates the completeness with which the rule of law has collapsed in the United States. Employees of private companies are protected against orders by OSHA to undergo illegal coerced medical interventions, but employees of companies that deliver Medicare and Medicaid services are not protected from the same mandate if issued by the Secretary of Health and Human Services. What we have is the complete separation of law from justice and the violation of the U.S. Constitution that requires equal treatment under the law. The justices have, again, delivered unequal treatment. As they have noted in many occasions, the United States is the Constitution. If the Constitution is dead, so is the United States. Uh, I think that's quite a good um, short column there. You know, one little thing here about the Nuremberg law, uh, Laws or Nuremberg Code, which, which he mentioned, I, I did a little bit of checking on that. And what's interesting, if you go out to the, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, that's the HHS that, that uh, Paul Craig Roberts referred to in his column. If you go out there, there's actually a page on the Nuremberg Code. And the page, uh, the page with the link on it, I'll just read this to you. It says, this is, from, this is from the, this is actually the National Institutes of Health, which is part of Health and Human Services. So this is the National Institutes of Health webpage here. It says, the Nuremberg Code, the voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent should be situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice. Now, the fact that this appears on the NIH website, uh, which is also part of Health and Human Services, that certainly, I think, implies that they, the NIH and the, the Health and Human Services has consented to the Nuremberg Code. Now, the Nuremberg Code, there's actually 10, I don't know what you want to call them, 10, 10 parts of the, the Nuremberg Code, but the first one is, is the most important, and it deals with the, the necessary of consent. And let me just read through that here. Quote, The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion, and should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved, as to enable him to make an understanding and enlightened decision. The latter element requires that, before the acceptance of an affirmative decision by the experimental subject, there should be made known to him the nature, duration, and purpose of the experiment, the method and means by which it is to be conducted, all inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected, and the effects upon his health or person, which may possibly come from his participation in the experiment. The duty and responsibility for ascertaining the quality of the consent rests upon each individual who initiates, directs, or engages in the experiment. It is a personal duty and responsibility which may not be delegated to another with impunity." End quote. Now, of course, this whole thing with the the vaccines is the largest Medical experiment on the human population has probably ever been conducted. The COVID vaccines, all of them in the United States, are given under what they call an EUA, Emergency use, uh, use Authorization. That is to say they're experimental. They have not been approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Now, some people will say, oh, well, the Food and Drug Administration gave approval back in April well, no, or back in August of 2021. Of well, no, they didn't. What they did is they gave approval to a drug called Comirnaty. But you cannot get commodity in the United States of America. You can't get it; it's not available. So the any any of these inoculations, any of these injections that you get, whether it's from Pfizer, whether it's from um, uh, Johnson Johnson, whether it's from Moderna, any of these, none of them are none of them are comernity. None of them have been approved by the FDA. All of them are experimental the idea that if you're going to force somebody to take an experimental treatment, you're violating the Nuremberg Code, which is at least given tacit approval by being out there on the website of the NIH and also the Health and Human Services. And, and of course, you know, it, it's not just the fact that people are being forced to to take a, an, an experimental drug, I mean, which obviously violates the uh, first point of the, the Nuremberg Code. But it also talks here too about the uh you know, in order to be able to give an affirmative decision that the the person who's potentially going to participate in the experiment, there should be made known to him the nature, duration, and purpose of the experiment, the method and means by which it is should be conducted, all inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected, any effects upon his health or person which may possibly come from his participation in the experiment. Well, I mean, the, the drug companies, the federal government, the social media companies, all these, have done everything in their power possible so that people don't have the correct information. I mean, they, they flat out lied, first of all, about the dangers of the the virus. And then they have also suppressed the dangers of of the vaccine. They've done this willingly. They've done this knowingly. I, I don't think it's possible to make a to give informed consent when you're not given proper information. Uh something else I wanted to talk about here too, uh, besides the VAX mandate. I wanted to talk about the, the Bergoglio administration. Yeah, I I've mentioned that before in in this I think it was another podcast, but it's it's really striking. And I noticed here in the past week or so there have been several stories that really show that there's not a dimes worth of difference between the ideas coming out of Uh, the Vatican under, under Pope Francis and the stuff that we're hearing coming out of, out of the Biden regime. For instance, on immigration, there's a headline, and this is in Breitbart News. In fact, I think all three of these examples come from Breitbart. They, they, Breitbart does some really good job reporting on the, on the Vatican. So, uh, okay, here we go. Pope Francis, we cannot hide from migrants behind walls and barbed wire. And there was another uh, article, I guess I didn't, I was actually going to use this, the, the other article, but he talks about that, that there's an obligation, Pope Francis said recently, um, for every nation to take in migrants. So there's an obligation, you, you can't get out of it, you can't shirk your duty, you, you have to do this thing. So, and of course, what do we hear from the Biden administration? Of course, you know, they've, they've opened the borders and, you know, people are pouring across by the millions. So, I mean, they, the, there's, again, there's not a, a dime's worth of difference between what the Pope's talking about and the actual policies that are be put into effect by the Biden regime. Um, then you've got the thing going on with COVID. And this is an interesting headline here. It says, Vatican threatens unvaccinated employees as Pope Francis laments the layoffs. So, so he threatens the, the employees of the Vatican with being laid off at the same time he laments people being laid off. Kind of of interesting there. I'll read a little bit of this. It says, The Vatican threatened its unvaccinated workers Wednesday while Pope Francis prayed for all those who have lost their jobs during the pandemic. The governor of Vatican City has decreed, decreed that employees must possess a super green pass attesting to vaccination against coronavirus or proof of having recovered from the disease if they wish to continue working. Those who attempt to go to work without the vaccine passport will be turned away. In the time, will be considered an unjustified absence without pay, the decree states. If the absence from work continues, employees will be liable for future penalties, including loss of their jobs. Three Swiss guards already have resigned from the Corps when faced with the obligation to receive the vaccine if they wish to continue in the Vatican's employ. In a curious juxtaposition, the same day the Vatican decree was released, Pope Francis lamented the loss of work of so many people because of the coronavirus pandemic, which has led some to commit suicide. You know, um, you know, there's there's the logic of Antichrist for you. On the one hand, he's forcing people to uh, make a choice between taking a, a an experimental deadly vaccine and, and their job, and then at the same time, he's lamenting all the, the job loss and suffering that's come from the pandemic, to which he's contributing greatly. Kind of amazing. Um All right, so here's a a, a third thing, and, and of course, you know, that's, you know, just to can continue that comparison. You know the the position of the Vatican on the COVID vaccines is pretty much the same thing as what you're getting out of the Biden administration. And you know and even after the the Supreme Court struck down the mandate for private employers, Biden was out there I guess that very same day he was encouraging employers to still keep pushing the vaccine mandate even though they they they're not required to. He wanted them to take up the the regulatory burden uh, and run with it, and continue to run with it. And here's the third way in which the policies of Pope Francis are virtually identical to those of the Biden regime. Here's a headline from Breitbart again. Pope Francis, no one is exempt from fighting climate change. So, you know, I, I guess we all have to, to try to, to save the planet because we're all going to die from some horrible environmental catastrophe if we don't listen to the Pope. And, of course, this is the same kind of thing that the Biden folks and the, and the progressives are, are pushing here in the United States. You know, there was another headline I saw where uh, the Pope was urging uh, Joe Biden and the Joe Biden people to uh, push forward with the, the Paris Climate Accord, which Donald Trump had the good sense to take us out of uh, way back in 2017. But, of course, uh, good old Joe Biden um, you now hopped right back in. I don't know if you could call him Jesuit Joe Biden. You know, he, attends, he does attend a Jesuit parish. And uh, his boss is the Jesuit Pope over there in in Rome. So I don't know. Maybe we could just call him Jesuit Joe. Uh, but yeah, Jesuit Joe put us right back in this Paris Climate Accord, which of course will economically cripple the United States of America, which I assume is one of the the purposes behind the Paris Climate Accord. That's enough there. Like I can say we've got the Bergoglio Biden administration going on, and it's it's quite remarkable to see how these uh, how the the policies that Policy prescriptions that come out of both of them are virtually identical on all of the big issues. Now the last thing I wanted to cover here was uh, Hillary was back from the dead. You know I saw this uh, Tucker Carlson did a piece this last week. I'm not going to play it. It's about a 10 or 12 minute segment, but he talked about uh, Hillary Clinton's, uh, I guess political resurrection, as it were. And he cited a a piece from the Wall Street Journal. I'll just take a look at this briefly. This is a piece from January 11th, 2022. It's titled, Hillary Clinton's 2024 Election Comeback. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have become unpopular. It may be time for a change candidate. Now, honestly, that's one of the funniest things I've ever read. A change candidate. Hillary Clinton is a change candidate. Hillary Clinton is the establishment's establishment. There's nothing change about her. That's one of the most asinine things I have ever read in all my life. But nevertheless, that's what the the um, the Democrats, uh, I guess there are two of these guys here, uh, who are they? Uh, Douglas Schoen and, and Andrew Stein. They want you to think Hillary Clinton's a change candidate. I, I I don't know. I lack the words. I don't even know what to say about that. So you know, you dive into here and they say, well, the Hillary Clinton may be the, the actual um, most viable candidate for the Democrats. And you know, the, the thing is, they may actually be right about that. But then that just goes to show you how universally awful all of the Democrats are. I mean, Hillary's crooked. We know that. She has deep seated hatred and contempt for ordinary Americans. We know that. And there's one other thing, and I have to mention this. I'll probably get myself in a lot of trouble, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Well, she's a woman. Yeah, you know, and you know, as a Christian, you know, it's not enough as a Christian critic or a Christian observer of politics. To, to simply, when, when we're dealing with female presidential candidates, simply to say, well, you know, we agree with her here, but we don't agree with this. You know, she's crooked and blah, blah, blah. I mean, those things are true. But as Christians, uh, no Christian should support a, a female woman presidential candidate. You know, John Knox dealt with that very decisively back when he wrote the, uh, his essay, you know, the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women. And he absolutely—he was absolutely devastating in that essay. It's it's an extended argument that it is improper to put a woman in charge of a nation or a city or, or any sort of a government. And he reasoned right out of the scriptures, and his logic is absolutely devastating. And John Knox was right. But not too many people have ever read his essay. In fact, I think probably even if you go into a lot of conservative... Even if you go into a conservative Presbyterian church, you probably have a hard time finding anybody uh, who's actually read that essay, and if they have read it, um, finding anybody who would actually agree with it. But well, yes, John Knox was right about that, you know. And, and as Christians, when we analyze politics, our the cure has to go at least as deep as the disease. I mean, Western civilization has all but collapsed. You know, now is not the time for half measures. You know, we have to speak frankly, we have to speak boldly, and and we have to apply the word of God. The fact of the matter is. There shouldn't be a woman presidential candidate in a sound society. That would not exist. But because of feminism, because of the the evil of feminism, I mean, it has created this situation. And there's a lot more to say about that. And I'm sure probably we'll come back and talk about that. I think there's a really good chance. I mean, the the Republicans are going to try to give us the monstrous regiment as well. There's a number of prominent female candidates. There's Christy Noem, governor of of uh, of North of, uh, South Dakota. There is, oh, who's the one? I, I can't think of her name right now. Nikki Haley. Yeah, Nikki Haley is another one who's uh, very prominent. Uh, she very well could be the Republican candidate. Either one of them could be the Republican candidate. Presidential candidate in twenty twenty four. I think it's entirely possible, and I think it's certainly possible Hillary Clinton could come back in twenty twenty four. I, I don't think that's crazy. So I'm sure we'll have opportunities to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, you know, we're getting on to about an hour, or so it's been a while here. Anyway, I, I hope you found some of this informative. When I when I put these things out there, you know, I, I I do this not to try to scare people, not try to freak people out. There's a lot of bad news out there, and I I wish that I wish I could could bring you better news. Than what I do, but I mean, we have to be honest. We have to face things squarely. We have to face things honestly. The Bible doesn't say, you know, go off and 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 run and, and hide in a corner someplace. Although sometimes it, sometimes it is appropriate to hide, but what it taught, you know, what the the consistent message is that as Christians we are supposed to engage the world for Christ Jesus that's our job you know that's a, you know the apostle paul talks about you know putting on the whole armor of god you know christ talks about you know when when you have a light you know you don't put it under a bushel do you no you you, you don't do that you, you 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 set it on a lampstand so it lights the whole room that's our job is to be salt and light and we can't do that if we're afraid to speak out you know the apostle paul when he wrote to the ephesians he he wrote and he said to them and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather expose them that's Ephesians five eleven, and that's a great verse. And now that ver- version I read to you, it's the New King James Version. And I, I looked at Clark's commentary here this evening, Gordon Clark's commentary, and and he made you know a, a number of good remarks here. And of course, one of them he said is what this verse tells us. You know, have no fellowship with the unfruitful work of, of darkness, but rather expose them. Is there's really two things here? He says, and, and it's not enough just to not have. Fellowship with the Unfruitful Works of Darkness. I mean, obviously, we shouldn't be doing that. You know, we shouldn't be involved in lobbying for abortion rights as Christians. You know, we shouldn't be in the business of supporting female presidential candidates. You know, we shouldn't be in the business of furthering, you know, aggressive foreign policy, interventionist foreign policies, things like this. We shouldn't be in the business of promoting forced vaccinations, and a whole bunch of other things, some of the things we've talked about here today. We shouldn't be in, in the business of doing that. But it's not just enough not to be involved. We also have to expose them. And I like the New King James translation. He says, but you know, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And in fact, Gordon Clark agreed with that. He thought that that was, pr- that was the best uh, in his view, he seemed to to favor that as the as the best translation. The, the King James has reprove, but the the New King James has exposed them. What we need to do is we need to expose the lies that are told to us. You know, whether it's by Anthony Fauci or the Jesuits or the Pope, you know, the Antichrist, all these guys, that whole basket of deplorables. We'll, we'll put them in a basket of deplorables. There, they, they are actually pretty deplorables, uh, pretty deplorable folks. Uh, Hillary Clinton, I guess we could put her in there as well. Now, our job is to expose them as Christians. That's one of the things we need to do. Expose their their lies, expose their, their false economics, expose their false politics. We need to do that. And we can't do that if we're running and hiding. So, I mean, we have to be bold in our witness. We have to put on the whole armor of God and go out there and fight like good Christian soldiers. That's what we're called to do. I hope you found this this message encouraging. That's that's what I want to do. I want to encourage you. I want to uh, embolden you. I want to help give you some of the tools to be able to go out and to do this. That's that's why I do this podcast. If I weren't doing that, there's you know there's plenty of other podcasts you could listen to. There's plenty of other things that I could do. But I feel obligated before the Lord Jesus Christ to be able to speak the truth to apply the Word of God to these things that we've discussed. Anyway, as I say I hope you found that helpful and uh, have uh, have enjoyed the. Uh, the podcast and gotten something out of it. Until next time, until we, we talk again, Lord willing, in, in a week, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's word.